0: Our scripture this evening is from 1st Kings 18, verses 1 through 16. 1st Kings 18, verses 1 through
1: 16.
0: And it came to pass after many days... But the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. And there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land unto all fountains of water and unto all brooks. For adventure, we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them to pass through uh, throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And, as Obadiah was in the way, behold Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face, and said, "Art thou my Lord Elijah?" And he answered him, "I am go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here." And he said, "What have I to sin?" that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me. As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go tell my Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from thee that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid... An hundred men of the Lord's prophets, by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord. Behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Thirty years ago, when I was on the Indian reservation, I saw from time to time one aged Indian who was a most remarkable and unforgettable figure? He was an old man, the son of the chief Paddy Cap of the Paiute Indians, and himself named Paddy Cap. He was very much unlike all the other Indians. In a sense, one could say, describing him objectively, he was a pathetic figure, and that he lived in the past. All he could think of was the war that his father, and he is a very, very young man, almost two generations previously, had fought with his father in western Oregon, a war that is now a very minor thing in the history of western Indians, but in its day was a very bitterly fought campaign. He lived in the past. Most of the Indians walked around him, He was intolerant of their trifling ways and their small talk. He was somewhat taller than average. But when you were around him, he seemed to loom over you like a giant. And his eyes would flash and his voice was strong with an intensity as he talked about the issues of years and years ago as though they were the only real thing under the sun. Because I found him very interesting to listen to, he would when we met. Stand erect with his voice and his eyes flashing and strong as he talked of those things. He was a pagan. His life was given over to a hopeless cause. But in a sense, he reminded me of Elijah. That total and absolute unswerving dedication to one thing and one only. All of Elijah's life speaks of that intensity of his dedication. So dedicated to the Lord that when he sees apparently the doors all closed, he can only say, Oh Lord, take away my life. He lived for one thing God schooled Elijah in the three and a half years, prepared him by the brook of and at Zarephath, for the day of confrontation with Ahab and the nation, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab. And I will send rain upon the earth. Meanwhile, Ahab, with a trusted governor of his house, was out, searching for a stream that might still be flowing, where there might be grass to keep some of his horses and mules alive. Only he and Obadiah were involved in that search, which is understandable if you know something about drought. and a time of drought, any place where there might be some flowing water and grass, is precious. I know some years ago during a drought when one cattleman, Went alone, he did not send anyone back up into the mountains to find a place where he could move his cattle and keep them alive, or at least keep some of them alive. And he went alone so that no one else might know of the place if he should find it. It tells us something of the trust Ahab had in Obadiah. Clearly, Ahab must have known of Obadiah's faith. And it is not the first nor the last time that ungodly men have placed their confidence in godly men. We know of the trust that Nebuchadnezzar placed in Daniel, as did Darius. And we know that, according to Paul in Philippians 4.22, there were saints in Nero's household. And the word that is there used for household can be Translated into more modern English, possibly as cabinet. Men who were important in the administration of the empire. We also know from history that when Genghis Khan took over that vast area that made up his empire, he turned to Christians, for many of his most responsible administrative officers, not because he was a Christian, but because he and his heirs to the end of the Mongol Empire felt that Christians were the most trustworthy of people, therefore they used them. This was one reason why the vast number of churches throughout Central Asia and China disappeared. Because when his empire was overthrown some generations later, the people turned against the Christians as a part of their wrath against the Mongol Empire. Ahab clearly trusted Obadiah. He took no one else with him in this search for water. Now Obadiah has sometimes been treated rather unkindly by commentators and preachers because of his seeming fearfulness on this occasion when Elijah tells him, Go, tell my Lord, the tell thy Lord. Behold, Elijah is here. Now, Obadiah was a man of courage. Obadiah had protected the Lord's servants, he had taken his life in his hands in so doing. Why, at this point, was he fearful? We cannot understand the significance of this passage until we grasp the meaning of Obadiah's shock at being told to summon Ahab. We can understand it if we grasp the meaning of that passage in terms of antiquity and in terms of the meaning of a summons. When we read the book of Esther, we read, for example, in Esther 4, verse 11, that no one could approach a monarch Unbidden. No one could go into his presence unless he summoned them. If they did, unless by his grace he extended to them his permission, they died. To go or to come depended upon the sovereign. Not only so, but as we read in verses 10 and 11 of this text, Elijah had sent messengers into all the kingdoms round about with a warrant for Elijah. And when they said, Elijah is not here, he required an oath of these nations that they were indeed telling the truth. There was a price on Elijah's head.
1: Now what did it mean?
0: When Elijah said to Obadiah, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Only from the cross only from the sovereign could a summons go forth saying, Come. And Elijah here speaks as God's throne man, with a warrant from the King of Kings, from God Almighty, saying to Ahab, Come. Can you understand the shock of Obadiah under these circumstances? This is an unprecedented thing. To order a king to come. To stand before God's throne man to receive his word of
1: rebuke or of judgment or whatever it might be.
0: And so Badiah was justifiably fearful. What man would dare speak to a king to go to him and say, there's a prophet there with a price on his head and instead of arresting him and bringing him to you, I'm summoning you on his authority to appear before him. Now Obadiah knew that possibly Ahab would come. After all, he wanted Ahab would come because he wanted Elijah. There was a price on Elijah's head. And also because the draught had been ordered by Elijah. He said to Elijah, How do I know that you will not disappear while I go after him? We parted just a little while ago as we divided the land amongst us. But the Spirit of the Lord may take thee elsewhere. But Elijah said, as the Lord God of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. This is one of the great moments of Scripture. Ahab answers the summons of God. And God lays down the conditions of the test to which all Israel shall be witness. But God also here lays down the conditions with which we approach the world. The conditions with which we approach men and
1: nations.
0: The conditions upon which we approach sinners. It is wicked in the sight of God to go before sinners pleading to them to come. Reformed evangelism once spoke of itself as a summons, a summons from Almighty God to sinners to appear before the throne to be judged. Judged and either to find the grace of God or his reprobation. And the early church, missionaries went out to the kingdoms and the tribes of their day, into to Northern Europe and into Central Asia, and into Eastern Europe, and to Britain. And they confronted kings and rulers, chiefs,
1: with summons, Thus saith the Lord.
0: They did not plead with them. They summoned them in the name of God. Now we are not Elijah's and we are not inspired prophets, but we have the same God and we have the same word and we have his infallible law word so that we can say to men and nations,
1: Thus saith the Lord.
0: And we do not need to plead with them. We declare the word. It is the infallible word. The word of the Lord who stands at the door and knocks. And Men either receive him as their Lord or they face him
1: as the judge.
0: And if Almighty God can bend the heart of an Ahab so that he comes to face God's prophet, and if Almighty God has bent the heart of kings and chiefs and pagans over and over again down through the centuries, So that they have responded to the summons of lone men of God. Who confronted them with the word of God.
1: He can do the same today. We face the world. But we
0: face it as the throne men of the King of Kings. Men with a warrant from the Most High God. We are sent into the highways and the byways to carry the word of the King of Kings to men and nations. Go ye therefore unto all nations discipling them, teaching them all things that I command you under orders, as men of the throne, men who go out with the sure word of the warrant, the summons of Almighty God. And so, as we speak to the King of Kings, as we pray to him, we pray as throne men who have access by the grace of God through Jesus Christ to the throne, who can therefore, Go to him and ask for his summons.
1: Go out in his authority,
0: in his power, and by his spirit. So that we can say to men and nations, Words of Moses. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. That thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice. That thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days. Thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob,
1: to give them.
0: Now a summons is still, today, a present reality. A summons is a legal fact, a legal document, whereby we are summoned to a court, a court of Alabama, or of Virginia, or California, or wherever the case may be. And if we do not heed that order of the court, We are liable to the wrath of the court. And the word of God is a summons to the world, to men and to nations, and we should see it as such. It is a summons to us and it commands us. It commands our time. so that the Lord has command of our time, commands it and says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and tells us that every day of the week we are under his summons to glorify him, to set forth the meaning of his calling in all that we do, It is the summons that commands our means so that we tithe because we are summoned, we are under orders. It is a command word with regard to ourselves and our family, so that as the Lord's people, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are doubly his, by the fact of creation and by the
1: fact of redemption, so that we are under orders.
0: And the word is a summons. Every word of God is law, because it is binding upon us. And every word of God is grace because God in his sovereign grace deigns to speak unto us. And so we hear it as a summons which is binding and as a grace
1: because God deigns to speak unto us.
0: Declare his so great salvation unto us. Make us his own through Jesus Christ. And give us the adoption of grace. And so we obey him. We delight in him. And because we know his word to be a command word.
1: We treat it as such when we speak to others. And we know that his word must be to us
0: the inspired and the command word. Too often people go to the scripture as an inspiring word. That's not how scripture speaks of itself. It's very uninspiring, you know, when it talks to us about our sins. And sometimes when we're in rebelling against him, we're loath to turn to it, or we've grown indifferent to him and we have time for everything except that word. It's anything but inspiring to us. But it is the inspired, the command word. And we go to it because it is our Lord who
1: speaks.
0: And we summon all men and nations to it. Because herein our Lord speaks. Go tell thy Lord. Tell Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. And if even an Ahab comes when God summons him, how can we dare allow anything to separate us from him?
1: And from his word, let us pray.
0: Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that we are thine. and We thank thee that by thy grace thou hast not only placed us, under thy summons, but given us the Spirit to hear thy word. Give us willing hearts and ears and feet to hear and to obey. Make us ever ready to surrender all that we are and all that we have unto thee, and to make known thy summons unto all men and nations. May the zeal of thy house consume us, and the joy of salvation illumine us, that we might be ablaze with the glory of thy work and the holiness of our cause. We thank Thee, our Father, for these, Thy children. For their delight in Thy house and in Thy word. Strengthen them. Bless and prosper them. Fill them with the joy of holiness. And make them powerful at the end. That they may witness a good witness to all those around them. And in thy name go forth. To conquer. We thank thee our father. That this is the victory which overcometh the world. Even our faith. Our God, we praise thee. In Jesus' name. Amen.
2: In the sixties, when I was visiting in Spain and was being hosted by Dr. David Estrada, preaching in some of the available places where he had ministered, we would driven down to Valencia and then to Carcahinty, and uh, I said to him, since the services started at nine o'clock, in view of the fact you couldn't openly have Protestant services at that time in Spain, and he was doing the interpreting that I would cut my message down to about twenty or thirty minutes and deal with only one point making his interpretation of it uh, extend that message out to about an hour. Well, we had some ministers that had driven up from Gibraltar and some that had come in from other places. And David said to me, he said, don't you dare. He said, these people have come out at risk of being arrested for being here. And uh, some have traveled at a, a great distance. You preach... At least 45 minutes. I'll interpret at least 45 minutes, or they'll go home disappointed. The services wound up somewhere around midnight, and then between then and two o'clock in the morning, we ate breakfast, and then, or, sup, or supper it was, and then sometime after that, we got to bed. I found out why they have those siestas in the afternoons. <laughs> so some of you have come a good distance, and uh, Rush has chopped you off. He didn't give you a full meal. Now, what he said was a full meal in itself, but I mean he didn't go on to the second and third course, did he? And as a result, we'll just have some questions and let him answer them. And I'll raise the first question. A gentleman said today, I would have asked him a question, but I felt that it might be elementary. And usually, the elementary questions are the ones others are wondering about, and his question was, what is humanism? So you come and answer that, and then after that uh, you uh, raise any question that uh, might be on your heart or mind.
0: Humanism is that religion which says that man is sovereign. We find the basic document of humanism in the Bible in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5 and the heart of humanism is in the tempter's statement he shall be as god knowing or determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil Humanism, therefore, says that man is sovereign, that man is his own God. Now, some humanists believe in God. Of course, the devils in hell all believe in God, James tells us, and tremble. But the humanist treats God as a great resource for man, not as the Lord. And if we merely treat God as a great resource, then we are humanists. But God is the Lord, and his word is the binding word, the command word. As our Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Humanism is at the heart of all paganism. Humanism is basic to every heresy. Humanism today is also the established religion of virtually every country in the world. What we have in the state schools today is the religious establishment of humanism. This is what they are teaching. And unhappily, increasingly the basis of law throughout the Western world is humanism, so that we are in process of overthrowing Christianity as the foundation of law in the Western world and replacing it with Humanism and a plan of salvation by the works of man. Are there any other questions or any further questions on humanism? Um, uh,
1: yes. I we have a tendency to uh, think of humanism as a philosophy and then uh, in situations such as some of us trying to make free into philosophy.
0: Yes, uh, there is a tendency to think of humanism simply as a philosophy. Humanism is in part responsible for that. You see, the earlier name for humanism was the religion of humanity. But the humanists realized that by that name they were alienating churchmen. And they decided that it would be most easy to infiltrate the churches and take them over and turn them into humanistic agencies by dropping that old term and simply using humanism and humanitarianism and presenting them as something which every reasonable man would be in favor of. Unfortunately, too, many people define religion as a belief in God. And they say, well, humanism is not a religion. But virtually all religions are not theistic. After all, Buddhism does not believe in God. Hinduism does not believe in God. It believes, we are told, in many gods, actually in many spirits. Ultimately, it, like uh, Buddhism, believes in nothingness as ultimate. Shintoism does not believe in God. It believes in a multiplicity of spirits, which are ancestors. And we can go on down the line of the major religions of the world and they lack a belief in God. And even those that in some form or another have borrowed from either Hebraic or Christian faith and have a semblance of theism, actually are implicit expressions of humanism so that we have to say that only Christianity is an anti- and non-humanistic religion, the only true theism. All the other religions have only a facade of theism. Uh, I didn't mention the religions of antiquity, of course, but they were clearly humanistic. The Greek and Roman religions, their gods were deified people. Several cities in Greece, for example, claimed to have a connection with Zeus, that he was born there or his grave was in another city or that he had been very prominent in still another city. They were very closely aligned in their faith with Ancestor worship.
1: Yes. About the rejoicing touch and how we are to apply this principle in our lives, mm-hmm. with an addendum to that, also with a portion of the touch, excuse me, of the tithe to be used for the education of the coming children. Yes.
0: On the tithe, let me simply say that within a few weeks, we will have a book out written by myself and Edward A. Powell, one of my staff associates entitled Tithing and Dominion. It will go into all the three tithes in great detail and give you all these relevant scriptures. Uh, So I'd rather, uh, this is in a sense a plug, (laughs) have you uh, wait a few weeks and get that book because I do feel the subject of tithing is extremely important. I believe it's God's ordained way for furthering his work. Scripture makes it clear that we're not giving a gift to God unless we give above and over the tithe. The tithe is his his due, his tax. And this is why it speaks of tithes and offerings or tithes and gifts. So... uh, this will be a book of about hundred and forty five or six pages, and I think it is uh, both concise and thorough. Now what was the second part of the question?
1: Is the a uh, portion of the time to be used for the education of the covenant children. Yes, that I will deal
0: with very briefly. Now in the old testament, of course. God's ministry was a twofold one priests and Levites. The primary function of the priest was sacrifice. But even then, only a small percentage of the priests, because they were a numerous uh, family of the descendants of Aaron could be used at any one time in the temple or earlier in the tabernacle. And we know that the others were used by both Jehoshaphat and Josiah for instruction. Now Deuteronomy 33 verse 10 tells us what the basic function of the Levites was. Instruction. And again, we find passages in Kings and Chronicles that deal with the role of the Levites in instruction. This is why in antiquity and virtually until modern times, the only people where you had an almost universal literacy was the Hebrew people because the Levites had that function. There is a saying that is still commonplace among Jews to this day, but goes straight back into the Old Testament, namely, that a man teaches his son to be a thief unless he teaches him the Torah, which by Their understanding meant not merely the law, but the whole word of God, that is, the Old Testament, and a trade to work with his hands. And that was quite strictly adhered to. And it was because of that Levitical function that it gave to Israel, the strength and the ability to re- have a real revival again and again when it seemed to be dead and gone and which, of course, through the centuries has kept the Jewish community alive. Now we know that very early and this was one of the factors which was basic to the life of the early church. It was only after the church was overwhelmed by the vast numbers of uh, pagans who were of a barbarian and very primitive level that this began to collapse, although it was perpetuated to a degree by the monks. But in the early days, and you can find full references to this in Bingham's Antiquities of the Christian Church. The church, the early church had two things: a school and a library because they saw themselves as a continuation of the Levitical ministry. The sacrificial ministry, the priesthood, was ended. The Levitical ministry continued. So, instruction was provided by the tithe. Now, the Levites received the tithe, and they gave 10% of the tithe to the priests. Now, true, a little bit more than that went for the temple in that the Levites provided the music and a few other things. But you can see that instruction was central to the functioning of the tithe. So we should see... Uh, Christian schools as central agencies of the ministry and as certainly a part of what rightfully constitutes the tithe. Yes? You failed to mention who publishing the book on tithing and dominion in the it? The book... Tithing and Dominion is being published by Ross House Books and if you simply write to Vallecito, California it will be available. It is uh, now in the presses and very shortly in a matter of days will go to the bookbinder and depending on his schedule could be out in uh, December. But certainly by the 1st of January it will be out. Are there
1: any other questions? Yes. Dr. I'm a music major, and I'm very concerned about the attitude of the most modern Christianity towards the arts, especially in music. Could you relate to me some books that would help me inform the of a worldwide view forward?
0: Yes. In uh, the second volume of my Institutes of Biblical Law, which will be out sometime about a year from now, I do have something on uh, what Scripture tells us about the role of music. Ours is a, uh, I, let me add, unfortunately, there's almost nothing else. <laughs> that's a sad fact. There's one important book about the continuity of music in the early church with Old Testament music by Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R of Columbia, The Sacred Circle, I believe, is the name of it. But our faith is unique in all of history in that it is a singing faith. An entire book of the Bible is given over to music, songs, the psalms. And the mention of music, of singing, of instruments is quite extensive. I believe there are something like 20 instruments mentioned in the Bible, at least 20. Uh, Perhaps the number is far larger. Now, music is singularly absent in other religions and in other cultures, except in a very negative sense. The music that you find in other cultures and religions is of two kinds. One expressive of revelry and debauchery. (laughs) So... It's uh, associated with uh, a great deal of uh, clearly immoral activity and the other with occultism as a means of uh, incantations and spells, of commanding spirits and that sort of thing. So the function of music apart from Christianity, is a rather uh, sorry one. Uh, so it's only in terms of biblical faith, the Old and New Testament, that music has its proper place. It's one of the sad facts that uh, somewhere along the line in uh, uh, The generations after the Reformation, music began to take a back seat, and today music is a a pretty sorry thing in most churches, but music has an important place in the life of the faith. I do believe that when the church gets back to tithing and to a proper evaluation of its ministry, we will again support financially a musical ministry within the churches. It's thoroughly scriptural. I feel very strongly about the place of music in the life of the faith. One of the sad facts, let me add just a little more, because uh, as I say, I've written about this, and it's easy for me to get wound up on this subject. One of the things that made Lutheranism so strong over the years was not its theology. There are some serious defects in Lutheranism and in its apologetics, But what has kept Lutheranism alive has not been the pulpit nor the academy, its seminaries. It's been its hymnology. There are approximately 14,000 to 21,000 fairly good hymns in Germany. And the average churchman in Germany knows between a thousand and fifteen hundred hymns. And these are of a high order. We have some of them in our English hymnals. The average uh, English speaking Christian knows only, and I'll exempt from there the Welshman. <laughs> Knows only a small handful of hymns and sings them badly.
1: <laughs> how about, go back again to Christian school. We understand that Christian's responsibility is to provide school for his children. Uh, to what degree is it our responsibility Yes, the question is, we understand that it is clearly our
0: responsibility to provide our children with a Christian education. Uh, to what extent is it our responsibility to provide this for the unbelieving? Well, the answer is that We are commanded to go and to make disciples and to teach. Now that certainly includes schooling. And there is no question that it has historically been a tremendous instrument of evangelization. Let me give you one illustration of that. The United States today should be in terms of the immigration a catholic country because after about 1815 or thereabouts the vast amount of immigrants both from germany and uh, northern europe as well as from central Western and Southern Europe throughout the century came from Catholic communities. And of course, you had the tremendous flood of immigration from Ireland. It began before the Irish famine, but after the famine, America was deluged literally. Every day, shipload after shipload at every port, port, discharging vast numbers of Irish. But the interesting fact is the majority of Irishmen, according to a Catholic sociologist, in the United States today are Presbyterian. How is this done? And the majority of uh, a variety of groups from Catholic countries are Protestant. It was done through the Christian schools, missionary schools. It were set up in many of the port cities and they provided the schooling for these immigrants' children. If that had not been the case, today we would have a Catholic country. Now, it was a tremendous instrument of missions then. Well, today we face a pagan America. Now, can you think of a better instrument than the Christian school? The Christian school can take the child of the humanist and shape his life and educate him in the Word of God in a way that you cannot with the adult convert. So we have a tremendous opportunity there. Moreover, we find that these parents, because they're in despair over what the state schools are, educationally, are increasingly turning to the Christian schools. It's a tremendous opportunity. It's one of the most available and ripest of missionary fields in the world today. They not only bring them to us, but they'll pay us. Now, you can't beat that for terms.
1: Regarding the counter reformation. And the author stated, uh, unfortunately I cannot remember the author of the book, that there was an overt, calculated attempt by